Okay. You my mic guy, Matt? All right. Okay. Did I miss any blanks, Lee? Uh, nope. Got them all. Like a boss. Okay. 1B is addition. Addition. Okay. Two A two sojourn. Feast of booths. Two B two temple. One A alteration. All right. We promised we were paying attention. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. So I, I got all sorts of places we can run, but any, any questions from anything we went over this morning? Any, any, any heresy I said or any? Sure. My definition of glory is when you're thinking of biblically glory, I mean, if you look it up in the dictionary, it's going to be like luminescence or fame. But I think biblically, the practical point of glory, glory is that which causes, spontaneously causes satisfaction, delight, praise, worship. Um, like I said, the best example I can see is when people get up out of their feet at, at some climactic moment in a sports game. What are they doing? They are excited. They're passionate. Praise. Yes! Their worship is coming out of their mouth. And I'm not trying to say that that's wicked. At its appropriate level of performance, it's wholly appropriate. God's made all sorts. Who's ever not just seen a sunset and just, wow, and just worship? But my part of what I'm getting at my definition is, it's not a burden. It's not a duty. You don't worship. Oh, I guess it's time to worship. You worship. You can't. We were made to worship. We were made to respond to glory with satisfaction, delight, and praise. We're made to do it. And you see the same thing happen when people go and see movies with glorious displays in them, you know, or, or any number of places you can see a little flash of glory. Um, so that, that's my sort of working definition of glory from a theologically working point. That's what it does, and that we were made to seek glory. And so in one sense, worship is recognizing glory. I mean, because worship comes from the old English worth-ship, to treat something as worthwhile, valuable. And glory is that which causes us to believe, that's valuable, that's worth something, that's exciting. So I mean, they, they fit together, glory and worship. You're not going to worship what you, what you don't see glory in, which is why I think 2 Corinthians 4 can say, the reason why these people are perishing, they don't see glory. You know? So consequently, they don't want Jesus. They don't entrust themselves to him because they don't see anything valuable, trustworthy, or wonderful here. So, so that's the linking of it. It's not like justification by seeing glory, but seeing glory becomes a necessary re- prerequisite to faith because if you just see it's just this Jewish peasant, whatever, like you're never going to bow down and worship him until you see glory, right? So that's, that's kind of the idea. Mm. Okay, that's my working definition of glory. Questions on any of that front or anything else we said? 
Okay, so while you guys wait, was anyone else here feeling slightly weird when I spoke of Jesus as creature? Oh, dude, it's, it totally creeped me out when I first came across it. So I wanted to find what I said, lest somebody, like, you know, sends this off to the Master's Seminary and I get, like, impeached for heresy. Um, no, no, because I remember first reading this. I remember first reading this. A guy named Oliver O'Donovan wrote a book called The Resurrection and the Moral Order. And he was writing a paragraph, and he said, Jesus can stand with the creation as creature due to the incarnation. And I went, well, What? And I sent off a quote to one of my professors, and it's actually like Abner Chow, was Chow. And I'm like, is this orthodox or heresy? And he's like, if you say it exactly like that, it's okay. <laughs> uh, and and the, point, the point to make, simply put, is this. Biblically speaking, we don't have bodies. We are ensouled bodies. Um, it's true that the soul, the spiritual component of man, has more weight to it, because when the two are separated, you go with your soul. But ultimately, the Lord is going to raise both the wicked and the righteous. There's a resurrection. No soul will ultimately be separated from his body forever. There will be a continual, there'll be a brief period until the Lord tarries, but souls and bodies will remain united. You are an enfleshed soul or an ensouled body. You are that union. God breathed the breath of life into the man and he became a living being. So, so if Jesus truly became human as opposed to the, the immaterial God took on an earth suit or something, then Jesus' body is Jesus. It's not the totality of Jesus in the same sense that my body is Jeremy. It's not the totality of Jeremy, but it's Jeremy. It's not Jeremy's body, it's Jeremy. You, you with me so far? So to the degree that Jesus' body is Jesus, Jesus is a creature, because Jesus' body is part of the creation. Jesus' humanity is part of the created order. And so, as long as you can say it, he is fully God. But he took on, he added full humanity, and in doing so, he added a creaturely element to himself. That is true. It's weird to say, and you know you, you know, there's all sorts of like cults and heretics who just, the, one of the other earlier... This is Arianism, that Jesus is the first created being, or the Mormons, he's, you know, Lucifer's brother or something. No, no, we're saying he's fully God. There's never a time when Jesus was not. But the one who is fully God entered into the creation and became, adding, by becoming and adding onto himself, human nature and a human body, which is rightly part of the created order. Does that, all those qualifications make sense? Yes, Lee! Needs a microphone, though. You're getting your steps in. You're getting your steps in, Matt. See, if you want to go in labor, you should be the one passing the mic around, Serena. Yes, Lee. Okay. Um, well, what you were just saying, I wasn't too shocked at because of Colossians. I don't know, diff different verses that came to my yeah. mind. But um, the thing that kind of didn't surprise me but kind of made me think is that he is still has the body in heaven that he's still that god man that didn't isn't separable and it's in heaven that's what kind of freaked me out because our our you know glorified body i know that he's he can't have a regular human body in heaven but yes. anyway it was that was something it wasn't a temporary humanity it was a temporary humbling yes. but it was not a temporary humanity he he continued and this how he can stand with the creature. We have, I mean, so you go back to Job, right? I, I, I can't take God to court. 
I got no attorney. I wish I had an arbiter, someone who could lay a hand on us both. And in the incarnation, Jesus can fully identify and stand with man as our high priest, as our intercessor, as our sacrifice, as our head of our humanity. And he's fully God. Um, and John's language in John 1 is, is the, the most undeniable. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't come close. I mean, what you know, what you know in Matthew, like, so like, take Luke, where we just were at, like, a decade ago or whatever. Um, you're just there. You know, it's, just, it's like, I keep thinking the mid-90s were just a couple years ago, you know. Like, well, like, seven or, seven or eight at least, but, you know. Like, now, see, I, that wasn't nice. Don't say that. Don't say things like that. Okay. Um, but, uh, 30... Ninety-three, ninety-two was thirty years ago. Yeah, I know, right? That is not right. That is not right. But okay, here I am saying things that I used to laugh at people for saying. It's like, ha ha, you're old. Okay, cool. Okay, um, but what was I saying? What were we saying before I was talking about old age? <laughs> oh, yeah. So in Luke, it's just the power of the Almighty will overshadow you, and you will conceive of the Holy Spirit. And so clearly, this child is from God, but I'm not sure what in Luke would preclude the possibility that a divine, non-human child is born. I mean, I guess you could try. It's not nearly as clear as this. Clearly, the source, the fatherhood of this child is God, but... Is it, you know, it's like the angels can eat meals. Like Abraham served food up to angels. So apparently they credibly looked physical, right? So what would preclude in Luke's gospel you thinking that? Well, nothing I think explicitly. This is explicit. He became sarks, like a sarcophagus, a flesh box. He became flesh became like all of other creation becomes things he became something he became flesh um one of the commentaries i read is the enfleshment of the word um and so now added to his being is flesh um in fact daniel and i went back and forth my original outline had some more points here and it was categorized as a change in being and when this there's two ditches that i want to guard against on heresy Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In Carol's class, I have no doubt we're talking about the immutability of God. God doesn't change. The incarnation sure looks like a change to me. And so I don't want to minimize the incarnation and make it seem as though Jesus just bolted on some flesh. He just sort of added some, he downloaded a new app or something. You know, that sounds really, really trite, but there's, he took on human nature so that his human nature is him. I don't think you can overstate that. It's not the totality of him, but it's him. Um, and yet, God is immutable and doesn't change. Those are your two ditches. If you, if you, you don't, yes, Lee again. So Jesus was born as, conceived and born as human baby. Yep. So where was he before, if that flesh person Jesus, where was, how did he just get there from no flesh to flesh? The Immaculate Conception. Well, yeah, I know I, that, that part, but where was he? Like a human baby. 
I, I know, hello people, I know that, yes. But but how how did he, you know what I mean? Because where if he was, all of a sudden he's flesh, and you say he doesn't change. Yeah. Where was the flesh before he became flesh? Oh, no, no, he, he didn't, there was no flesh before the incarnation. The word became right. flesh. I mean, no, 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 there's, no, no. So that's what I'm saying. So what I'm saying is, but even when we talk about the immutability of God, so like in Hebrews 13, Jesus changes in many significant ways. Does Jesus possess more glory now that he's been given the name above every name than before he was given the name above every name? Well, of course. And Jesus is the God-man, and he wasn't the God-man. He was just God. So when I, I tend to think when it says God doesn't change, God's fundamental character, what's his glory? It's his character. It's what he's like. That doesn't change. So in Hebrews 13, don't love money. Why? Because he's promised to never leave or forsake you. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The point the author of Hebrews is making, he's just as dependable today at keeping his word as he was yesterday and as he will be forever. So if, if what doesn't change about God is his fundamental, what he loves, what he values, what he's like, what his character is, then none of this changes Jesus. But man, oh man, the incarnation sure looks like some sort of fundamental change, even though we got to insist God's unchanging. But I'd rather walk up right to that edge and then try to downplay it. You know, like I think this is supposed to be jaw droppingly. Whoa, you know, what? That's, that's the point. Okay. Okay. Incarnation. Well, even the word incarnation, it's carne, like carne asada, right? It's, it's the end meeting of the word. Right? Okay. Okay. Questions? Did, did, did you guys begin to see, it'll become clearer next week, did you guys see, or are you taking my word for it more, about Exodus 33 and 34 forming the backdrop of this passage? Um, let's go to John 1. I just want to show you, I think I said there are like seven or eight points of connection. I want to try to show them to you. Um, John 1. And I'll spoil next week's thunder a little bit. If you got the ESV, you've got a footnote on verse um, 16. For grace upon grace. You got a footnote for verse 16? For grace upon grace? No? Yes. The, the Greek preposition is anti like antipasta or antifreeze. And it, it signifies some sort of contrast, which is why I don't like grace upon grace, which seems to be concurring, just like w stacking up, like wave upon wave, present on top of present. N no, a grace, D.A. Carson, replacing a grace, which if you read in verse 17, it seems to be exactly what he's saying. There's a contrast. For the law was given through Moses... And in contrast to that, grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ, a grace replacing a grace. So I think the whole contrast setting up this entire section is Moses going up on the mountain, Moses seeing God's glory, Moses coming down with the law covenant, and there's a glory there, there's a goodness there, and Jesus coming as the final revelation, and Jesus bringing a new and better covenant, Jesus bringing a new and better grace, Jesus showing a fuller glory. I think that's the whole contrast, this whole section. And that's why I think Exodus 33 and 34 are the backdrop. And from that, then, 
the points of connection are um, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, pitched his tent among us. There's the tent of meeting is introduced right there in Exodus 34, where Moses and God would meet. And when Moses and God meets, what do we read? His face glowed. And we've seen his glory. What happens at the Sinai? Moses says, show me your glory. No one can see God's glory and live. Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God. Like That's directly connecting to that. And from his fullness, we've all received a grace replacing a grace. For the law was given through Moses. When was the law given through Moses? Right there in Exodus. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So I think that whole section is the backdrop of 14 to 18. And, and what he's very, very intentionally referencing and contrasting. And all that sets up the, the transitions in 2 to 4. So to further back my reading of a grace replacing a grace, which is the most natural reading of the preposition ante, is the fact that starting in chapter 2, Jesus fulfills, replaces, eclipses things repeatedly. Let me show you. A grace replacing a grace. If I started with two, you could accuse me of allegorizing. I don't think so, because of where we're going to go. But it's not for nothing that John tells us what the containers that the wedding wine was turned into were for. What? Ceremonial cleansing. cleansing. What typifies the Messianic age? Wedding feast, wedding wine. So we go from ceremonial cleansing under the law to a wedding wine. Then, in John 3, you must be born again. In John 2, I skipped this already even further, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. From natural temple to the temple of his body, from natural birth to spiritual birth. In John 4, from place of worship to the heart of worship, God's not seeking worship, he's seeking worshipers. The time is coming and now is when this temple deals, it's getting replaced, it's getting superseded. John the Baptist, he must increase and I must decrease. In this section, and it's a... Um, it's a uh, brain cramp, not a, it's, it's an inclusio. So let me show you the, the inclusio, is when, inclusio is when an author bookends a chunk and it lets you know it's a unit. And the inclusio is seen in four, um, four, hold on, uh, 46. So, when he had come again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. So, apparently, from the wedding at Cana with the water into wine to here is a chunk. And what dominates that chunk is destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. Water from purification to wedding wine. Natural birth to spiritual birth. He must increase and I must decrease. Place of worship, heart of worship. It, that's a grace replacing grace. Jesus brings something greater, fuller, completing to what's gone on before. So all that to say, yeah, I think this is a big theme in John's gospel. The justice Moses went up on the mountain and brought down a gracious revelation of God, his glory and his covenant. So Christ has come and has now brought something even greater. Um, okay. Questions on that? that well, there'll be more of that next week, but this is an attempt to try to, this is why I think John's doing this. And I'm not just trying to make stuff up. Um, so can I go back to Jesus always human always God right yeah what do you do with the time he took on all sin we'll get there in John 17 <laughs> just wait a couple 
I'm buying myself two years, man. What do so, you do so, with, so, if he's always God, always human, what do you do with the time he took on all sin and God's sinless? While Jesus is bearing the wrath of the Father, is he still upholding the universe by the power of his word? It's a good question. Um, the short answer right now is I don't know. He didn't stop being God. The question is, the question is, how was he functioning? How much was he functioning as God? I, I tend to think, forget tend to think, I, I argue that in the incarnation, Jesus, this is a clum, clunky way of saying it, sets aside the independent use of his divine attributes. He sets aside the independent use of his divine attributes. It's not that he ceases knowing all, it's not that he ceases being omniscient. He does not function in omniscience. The, the, the stupid example I've used is like turning the power steering off. My car still has power steering. I've just turned it off for now. I'm going to not make use of it. And my car still has the power windows, but I'm turning the switch off so I don't use it. I can't use them anymore. Jesus sets aside the independent use of his divine attributes. That's, that's my understanding. So, so similarly to when he asked for it to pass, yes. he could have made it pass himself. Yeah, well, go to John 17. There is, and the reason why I'm saying there's something, good question, something you're going to is, if I could summarize what I'm about to say, Jesus says to the Father, in effect, I, you gave me these people out of the world, the disciples, and I've guarded them, and I haven't lost any except for Judas, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But Father, I'm going to the cross, and while I'm there, you need to guard them. Well, the implication seems to be I'm otherwise occupied. I don't want to parse it out too much, but that seems to be something like what he's saying in his prayer. Let's, let's read it. Um, so like the short outline of John 17 is 1 through 5, he prays for himself. 6 through 19, he prays for the disciples, and then 20 through the end, he prays for us. Let's just read the disciples. I have manifested, verse 6, your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave to me. They have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. Holy Father, I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name. So, there's some transfer of I've guarded them, which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated you because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one, for they that they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. So I don't know what to make of this transfer of protection, but what's Jesus do hours before he goes to the cross? He says, I've guarded them this far, Father, can you take over? Now, implications, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, you're picking up on something. I don't want to press it too, too far, but yeah. 
Right before he goes to the cross, he hands off the protection of the disciples to the Father. Because I'm coming to you. So, give me some time to get to John 17. But that's a fair question. And I don't know. Great question, though. Tim. Uh, Topic is worship. And so, in John chapter 4, it talks about God is seeking those to worship him in spirit and truth. Is there a connection there on the different types of worship? Do you have a short summary, or is this wait till John chapter 4? I will punt, but I will give, I'll give a short answer. I don't think, I don't think um, that it's about different types of worship. I think... I mean, in the sense of like songs and hymns and rock band or acoustic or acapella or organ or anything like that. Um, I think the the difference is, he says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Uh, I, I would take it to be something more like those who worship must worship him for who he is and do it in accordance to truth. So worship in spirit and in truth would be worshiping God as a spirit and as he's revealed in his word. God is looking for those who will worship him that way. Um, that, that's my short version. When we get to John 4, I'm sure I'll have more to say on the topic. But um, as, as opposed to, I was just listening, I was mowing my lawn this week, I was listening to Carson, as opposed to something like authentic, which is how I frequently think people take it to mean, we're going to offer God authentic worship in spirit and in truth. It's not about us. It's about worshiping him corresponding to him. Um, he's spirit, so we worship in spirit and we worship in truth. It's not about, you better really mean it, be really sincere and don't fake it, although you shouldn't fake it. That's not, I think, what that's getting at at all, um, is worship him truly, according to how he has revealed himself and for who he is. So, okay. Sarah, in the back. So, going back to the idea of grace, um, completing the grace or in place of a grace. Um, so would that, I, I'm confused about the grace that's being replaced. Would that be talking about the law? Because I've never understood the law as being a grace. No, that's a great point. And if, and if you read some of Paul's strongest statements about the law, it's hard to view the law as grace. But read Psalm 119. Seven times a night I, raise, I rise and praise you for your law. Did God have to give Israel the law? No. So Paul will say things like the law was a heavy burden we could not keep. The law brought death. And there's truth to that. And he's contrasting it to the superiority of the new covenant. But make no mistake, the law was... Go, go to Deuteronomy 6. Go to Deuteronomy 6 for a second. One of the reasons why sometimes I'll quote... You try to figure out like what's righteous, what's good. We're not under the law. I don't want to structure our government as though it's the law of Israel. However, based on Deuteronomy 6, we the law is awesome. Whatever the law is, is great. And it's not just great supposedly for believers, but for unbelievers as well. Let, let me show you what I'm talking about um, in 6. Is it 6? Or is it 3? Hold on. It's where the nations will hear about your law and they'll say, what wise people and what wise God has this law? Like Israel's law is supposed to make all the surrounding nations like jealous and be like, that's awesome. Like that's supposed to be um, 
the response. So the assumption is, this is an awesome law. This is a great law. Is it six or is it... In, hold on. Um, hold on. Okay. Um, where is it? But it's supposed to be the nations. Like, literally, it's the nations. Um, it's blessing. Hold on. This is, no, no, no. Um, hold on. So you should probably have this stuff looked up before I tell you to turn there. I think it's, is it seven? Is it seven? Okay. Hold on, let's look it up. I can find it in th three shakes of a whisker. Um, wise. Deuteronomy 4. There it is. Neither one. I knew it was there at the beginning of Deuteronomy. I knew that. Okay. Deuteronomy 4, um, start in verse 5. See, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession. Keep them and do them. That will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as our God is to us? Whenever we call on him, and what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I have set before you today? So we dare not criticize the law. That's, that's why, like, whatever you make of the law, it's hard to be like, that was a bad law. No, it's supposed to be like the rest of the nations are like, whoa! So what we have is greater, but the law is good. Um, the law is a gift from God. The law mediated the covenant. And so in all those senses, Sarah, the law is a gracious gift. Because so, Paul, like in Romans 3, Paul says, what benefit then is a Jew? Much in every respect. They're entrusted with the oracles of God. They're given the law. Um, so God in the law revealed truth gave them righteous laws, gave them the whole sacrificial system by which they could deal with sin, they could deal with cleansing, they could draw near to God. Here's how you can come near me. Um, that's all grace. There's, there's, as much as, by, as much as Paul certainly wants to emphasize the law has all these demands and you can't do it, it's, he also makes it clear, it's not the law's fault, it's your fault. You're too wicked for this law. You're too perverse for this law. This is an awesome law. The problem is you guys stink too much. And that's really Paul's conclusion. Simeon, and then... Oh, no, you get the mic. Go. Ladies first. Um, there yeah. was a, a study that I had done, and, and it was about the law part of it and how yeah. really the law was a gift. And it was a gift somewhat just to the people so that they could be peaceable amongst themselves, too. So yeah. it was kind of some expectations that you could trust from your brother and how that you would, um, you know, how you could treat one another and live in a more you know, just a peaceable state too. So um, that had helped me to kind of see it more as a gift. Well, and the other, the other part, Sarah, no, no, the other part, turn to Psalm 51. The other part is, I think a lot of times when Paul speaks about the law, he's speaking about the law viewed as a means of becoming righteous. In Galatians, it becomes clear. Those of you who would be justified by law. But it's clear 
I love this in Psalm 51. David is under no misconceptions that the law is how he's going to be made right with God. David has killed a man, stolen his wife, involved the military complex, covered up, lied about it. The kid's been born. He's covered it up, hardened his heart for nine months. And, and, and Nathan comes and rebukes him, right? And he writes this. Think of, the, think of the repentance to go public. We're putting in a new hymn in the hymnal about how our king is an adultering murderer. And God forgave him. That's what David did. David put this in Israel's, in Israel's hymnal. Um, the title, To the Choir Master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. This, so he's not being subtle. And he, he says, um, verse 10, Create me a clean heart, O God. Renew right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. That's not hyperbole. He saw this happen to Saul for lesser evil. Did he not? Take not your Holy Spirit away from me. The Holy Spirit departed from Saul, and an evil or harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Oh no, David knows this. David has seen that happen. Do not do that to me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I'll teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Which is to say, what sacrifice do you go to in the law of Moses when you've killed a man and stolen his wife? There isn't one. David knows what I need, the law of Moses cannot provide. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So David is going for something deeper and more foundational. The law of Moses sits upon the covenant of faith of Abraham. That's part of what Paul is saying. Is the law came 400 years later. What we have in the gospel is actually the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. And the law of Moses understood not as a way of being right with God, but as a way for God to govern a people who are already right with him by faith is great. It's a terrible way to get justified. Because notice what he says in 18 and 19. David is not saying the other thing we could be saying, which is because it's a matter of the heart, it doesn't matter what I actually do. David is not saying I get to permanently opt out of the sacrificial system. Do good design and your good pleasure, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings. So David's not saying because all that matters is my heart, I can completely ignore the Levitical temple worship. He's just saying, first and foremost, what I need is not a bull or a goat or a lamb. I need a broken heart before God. Then, when God's restored me, then I'll go do the things Moses told me to do. Then I'll do the things the law told me to do. So, understood rightly, I, I think Paul's strongest statements against the law are towards those who would view the law as a means of becoming righteous, in which case he'll call it death. The law killed me right? Um, I'm thinking Romans 7 is probably some of the darkest things he says about the law, but there it's clearly the law as that which just, as people would use to be justified. But in Deuteronomy 4, there we go, it's clear the law is an awesome law. 
unbelieving nations are supposed to be impressed by it. So I think in that context, we can say there is a grace in the law. What did Israel do to merit this law? What did Israel do to merit these rules? Think of all the different groups of people, weak, powerless people the law protects. The law protects unborn children. If two men strive and one of them strikes a woman by accident and the child falls out, it shall be eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. I love that. God equates the life of the child in the womb as equal with the man who accidentally struck the woman. It's amazing. Um, the different groups and people protected by the law. The, I, I guarantee you they viewed that as grace. When women were, were protected from false accusation for adultery. And that's ultimately what Moses is saying. He didn't permit them to have divorce. What he's saying is, since you are divorcing your wives, you're jolly well going to give her a certificate of divorce so that people don't accuse her of being an adulteress. Because you put to death adulterers and adulteresses. It's a capital offense. Which gets really tricky when people say, well, would you be supportive of putting adulterers to death? I'd be hard-pressed to critique it given that it's in the law of Moses and that's righteous and just, wouldn't I? Whether or not I think it's the position I favor, I wouldn't want to say anything bad about that, right? Because this is an awesome law and the law puts to death adulterers. Um, so so that's, that's part of the tension. Well, I'll go to the law to say, look, we're not under the law, but whatever's in the law is wise, good, right, righteous. It's a good starting point for policy, even though we're not under the law. Um, does that make any sense? Okay, that's sort of a semi-long answer. I saw one other hand over here. Lucas is up. Simeon. Yeah, Simeon, go. Uh, I just wanted to comment with Romans 7.7, 7, which oh, is, yeah. what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By, By no, no means. means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Part of, part of the graciousness of the law is its functioning to reveal sin, which doesn't make... It's like the grace of the diagnosis. Yeah. Well, in one sense, the diagnosis ain't fun, but you, part of the law... You guys are way worse than you think you are. <laughs> and I'm going to give you this law to prove it to you. And so simultaneously, the law's demands are reasonable. The law's demands are... Make, like, that's good. That makes sense. And yet, <laughs> you can't do it. Um... Very, very fast, because that's okay. their beep. That's our clock. I have a question about the law, grace to be saved. It just means by Paul is gifted from God. It's from Ephesians 2, verse 8. That's what Ephesians it says. 2, 8? Yeah. By grace you've been saved through yeah. faith, not by works. This is the gift of yeah. God, lest no one should boast. Amen. That's a great place to end, Lucas. Thank you all. And depending on the timing of this baby, I'll see you all next week. Or not. We'll find out. Woo! Thank you. <laughs>